You're listening to Intrepid Healthcare's exclusive coverage of Him 17 Annual Conference and Exhibition. Welcome to our special Join the Conversation show direct from Him 17 in Orlando. Join the Conversation is brought to you by Experian Health. Experian Health, leading the way to help their clients power opportunities to create a better tomorrow. And now, here are your hosts, Joe Lavelle and Todd Yuri. I am Joe Lavelle, and I'm going solo on this great interview with Dr. Nick Andrew Hayden. Dr. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Joe. It's great to be here. Well, we appreciate you spending the time. Could you take a few seconds and just give the audience an idea about you and your background? Everybody knows me as Dr. Nick, but that's really part of my social media presence, and I'm comfortable being called Nick, but I have to tell people that I'm Dr. Nick because sometimes they don't know or they don't make that connection. I'm a physician by training. Most people can tell I probably didn't train in this country, trained in the United Kingdom, practiced medicine internationally in Australia and the UK, and have spent the last 30 years really focused on digital health and the enablement of technology at the intersection between healthcare and the interactions that clinicians have but then the broader population has. Good deal. And Dr. Nick, you're the Chief Medical Officer of NTT Data. Would you give us a 10,000-foot overview of what NTT Data does? So NTT Data is a organization that's homed out of Japan. Most people know NTT Docomo. That's the holding organization. Very similar to AT&T in the United States, but they have a conglomerate and a large set of organizations that well over $100 billion in terms of revenue and activity. Of that, NTT Data and the U.S. part of that is about a four 14 billion sized organization and the healthcare piece is really focused on delivering services, systems integration and is staffed by this astounding collection of folks who are really passionate about this and like me have lived and breathed this. You jump into healthcare and you think you understand it as some of the large organizations that think that they can jump in and do technology discover it's not quite as easy as that. So one of the things that we really focus on is living and breathing this stuff and delivering value to tie all of this stuff together and allow our customers, our partners. And that's everything from implementation services all the way through to technology, integration, interfaces, and then providing added value. How do you offer the value that actually allows the clinician, the patients to get the maximum content and useful knowledge to affect positive outcomes in terms of clinical care? Perfect. One of my favorite things about HIMSS is figuring out when and where you're going to speak each year. Yesterday, you spoke with an executive from Hilton Hotels. What can you tell us about your presentation? I was really excited about that, and I think HIMSS were, too, in terms of the profiling that they gave it. They put it in uh, views from the top, which gets a lot of press and publication. And I think it was because it resonated. And what was interesting about it, it was titled The Best Exotic Marigold Hospital, tie-in, obviously, to the movie that most people remember and I was excited. I enjoyed it. But really the concept of hospitality. And one of the things that really fascinates me is where you can benefit from the intersection between other industries. Healthcare is doing things unique, but there's so much that we can learn. And what we were really trying to focus on was bring that knowledge and experience. And I had the privilege of presenting with Natalie Corridor from Hilton Worldwide and learning and sharing their experiences on how they've digitally enabled a tight connection with their customers and whilst people sort of 
tend to resist this patient as a consumer or a customer. Even if you put that to one side, you can see a lot of similarities in terms of the hospitality industry and the way that behaves and what we can learn to deliver that kind of connection and value in terms of how we deliver care, not just the clinical care, but all the other things. And the interesting thing that came out in that conversation, as somebody pointed out in the Q&A session, not everything in healthcare is perfect. If you go in for a cancer treatment, sometimes we can't treat you. That's very troubling for a clinician. We go to medical school to cure you, but sometimes there isn't. But that doesn't mean to say we can't deliver fantastic services to the clinical environment, to the patient, to allow them to feel like they were really cared for, even if we didn't cure them. And that's what Hilton does really well. So it was really focused on that interface. Very exciting. I love the opportunity to share the stage with one of the brands that I admire and love the experience personally. Perfect. Thanks for that great overview. I want to jump right into probably the most common conversation. People are talking about the movement from fee-to-service to to fee-for-value. What trends are you seeing? Is it talk? Are things really happening? My sense is that everybody believes that this is the right direction. I think there's maybe still pockets of resistance, and there's a lot of impetus in the industry that says this is the way that we've done it. There's a lot of money tied up in that pay-to-do things, and it can be hard to shift the direction. But ultimately, we know that we can't afford that mechanism because if you just pay to do stuff, you get what you incent. And that's what we've gotten in the healthcare system. And the opportunity with a value-based system is to focus on the outcomes. And I think all parts of the industry, everything from the physicians through to hospitals, providers, even the pharmaceutical industry is saying, I'm no longer producing a drug. I'm producing a solution or I'm solving a problem. And that's especially relevant to them as they sort of come to these microceuticals and this precision medicine where it's no longer a blockbuster drug that treats millions of patients. It may be for three or four. How do you then define the value and reconcile that so that they make money? They have to make money. People think that's ugly, but the reality is that's the way we deliver service. I couldn't have gone to medical school if I couldn't pay for it. And it's the same in hospitals. So we have to change the system. I think it's moving. It's moving a lot slower than it should or needed to, but the opportunity is there. And I think the impetus with, importantly, what I see as the silver tsunami, the baby boomers that are that bulge in the pyramid of people that have forced change in all the other areas of industry, like education, housing, all those things happened as a result of the baby boomers. And I think that's what's driving it. It's the patients that are really driving this. I've always really appreciated that you kind of followed the macro strategies that were going on in the industry. What are you thinking about the new political landscape and maybe what's going to happen with the ACA? My safest answer is to say I don't discuss politics. (laughs) And if you look at my feed, you'll see that I steer clear. I think one of the most important aspects of politics is to really try and sit or live in the other person's shoes, whatever that opinion is. And one of the things that really troubles me about social media, and I said this in one of the interviews that I did leading up to Hems, is we need to be respectful of those other opinions. Everybody has a valid, genuine opinion. They must have a reason for it. I don't think anybody starts out with bad intentions. There's maybe a small minority, but the vast majority 
majority. We all have a good intention, so we have to understand that. That's my baseline in all of this. I try and see the positive in most things. My glass has always been full. It's half full of water and half full of air, or actually mine is half full of whiskey, Scottish <laughs> malt, to be clear. <laughs> Those that know me will know that that's true. So I look at the changes, and people are concerned about where this is going to go. And one of the most positive things I heard about our new administration is disruption. And I know disruption can be a negative, but I think disruption is what we need in this industry. And I think, again, if you take the view that there is a good intention, people are not trying to harm or damage, then if we can disrupt, and maybe it requires this just radical disruption to the existing status quo to really shake things up. So my hope is that we're going to see this. I know there's a lot of fear, uncertainty, doubt that sort of surrounds this, but that's the world we live in. This is our elected government, and I respect that. I'm an immigrant, and I'm proud to be here, and I have great faith in the system that was created many years ago by the founders. Very well said. I couldn't agree more. I think one of the problems with where the ACA sits today, it was one-sided and rushed through or slammed down one side's throat instead of collaborating. And whatever we do next, we got to collaborate, and we got to work together and trust that everybody has the best of intentions. There are parts of the ACA that we can't get rid of and we'll need to fight for and there's parts that are just broken. Right. And I think that's exactly right. So when you look at the history, a lot of people forget some of that history, but you captured some of the essence from other people's perspective where they felt that this was rammed down. I think most people agree. I know I do because I've got college age kids. I'll take one, I hope, non-controversial example, but putting my kids on my medical insurance just seems like really good stuff. I don't mind paying for it. I think it makes sense. They're not really high risk typically, but they need to be insured. That was a great thing. And now I don't have to worry about my kids in college being insured. Actually, it became a bigger problem because the colleges all said, oh, no, you've got to prove it because otherwise we're going to force insurance down your throat. So there was a little bit of a backlash as a result of that. But that was just administrative. But it was a good thing. Absolutely. It's always tough to separate the buzz and the hype from the real things here at Hims. Another big buzzword is patient engagement. As you serve your clients, what's really happening with patient engagement? Are we engaging patients or are we just putting up portals and giving them data? I've said this a number of times and continues to trouble me. It was a surprising data point that suggested that this patient engagement and the inclusion, importantly, so you've had patients on this show. I'm privileged to wear one of Regina Holiday's walking gallery jackets true advocates, e-patient Dave, I sort of cited him in my presentation. But the number of patients included in these kind of conferences remains stubbornly low. And that's sad. And that's despite, I think Hims has tried really hard to be inclusive and incorporate that as other conferences have. And it's one of the things that I think we have to fix. Ultimately, everybody here is a patient. I think sometimes folks forget that healthcare is personal. So we're all looking at this through a lens of our professional lives, but I look at it through patients' eyes, and I've engaged in the systems internationally because of my background and my parents that other systems. So I have this perspective. As Leonard Kish said, it's the most undervalued asset that we have. It is a central asset that you can apply in this space. And that's why I think that baby boomer bulge is truly going to have this impact because they're now arriving at the healthcare system and really using it in large numbers. And I think most of them are going, wait, what? <laughs> what? what? <laughs> 
And that's going to force change. So if you want to see the power and the reason, irrespective of politics... There's nothing more powerful than the power of the people who are saying, wait, this isn't right. We need to fix that. And that's what they did with other things. So that's where my positive, my hope comes. Yeah. And if you combine that with us in the bulge that are assuming a higher and higher percentage of cost before the ACA, I started my own business and I was paying $425 a month for my family's health care coverage. It was a super goal plan, $25 deductibles. Well, through the Blues plan in Alabama, our rate last year went up to $1,700. We're on the bronze plan now. There's no deductibles left. We're just paying right. until we get to $8,500. Yep. You're on essentially the same plan that I have through my employer. I elected to go to it early. There was a choice. I think there is still a choice, but I'm on a high deductible plan. And that's the other thing that drives the baby boomer generation is we cost shift. And I will shout out to Dan Munro and, and Casino Healthcare. Outstanding book that really sort of covers this. If you want an education and comprehend this and really get to the history and why we reach this point, that's one of the points that he's made. We've essentially shifted. And that's part of the pain that people are feeling is that we're now responsible. The good news is, instead of me shopping for a car that somebody else is paying for, I'm shopping for a car that I'm paying for, and that makes me much more cost sensitive. There are some downsides. I've seen it personally. I will tell you, I think I have at least two fractures that I never bothered to get treated. Minor issues in my mind. I know some people will probably listen to this go, oh my God. So that was my personal choice. They were things that I couldn't do anything, but I avoided the cost as a result of that. And I'm in a cost fight personally, with organizations that billed me for what was essentially a screening procedure that I shouldn't be paying for, but got coded. And it's now months later. So there are some consequences, but that I think is going to be part of what we see driving change. Absolutely. Another buzzword this year is analytics. If we were to do a tag cloud on the words in everyone's booth, I bet 99% have the word analytics somewhere in there. How do you see providers using analytics? Are they just scratching the surface or are they really digging in and making value for patients? The issue with analytics for me boils down to just making a bigger haystack that's occurred with all of this data. I'm a big fan of all data, not big data. I think we need to capture everything. My analogy is the medical record is a piece of string. And what we used to get was these tiny little segments from the string. And that didn't really deliver a lot of information. Your blood pressure when you walk into the office, if it's like mine, whoa, it goes way up. That's not really valuable versus measuring blood pressure over a concerted period of time. For me, it's always been a filter. It's never a data problem. It's a filter problem. Analytics is the filter in this that allows us to present information as knowledge that is actionable for the clinicians. And that's one of the things that we focus on. How do you deliver that in a way that doesn't overwhelm the physician, the patient, the PT, the pharma, whoever it is, with all this additional data that I think is absolutely necessary and valid. And in some instances, we don't fully understand. That's part of, to me, the opportunity. I know lots of people, well, well, what's the point in collecting it? We don't understand it. Well, I don't know that that's the right strategy. I think we should capture it. And if we never use it, that's okay. It's not really a high cost in storing this. What can we derive from that? We're already seeing signals in data that is truly astounding to me. As you look at the wearable devices that track your activity, I know that the companies that are looking at that have seen signals that are three weeks before an injury occurs before it actually occurs. Now, that's not science. That's not data. It needs investigation. But that's really exciting. 
Wouldn't you want that? No, to go, hey, you're going to get injured in three weeks, Joe. You need to do something different. Take it easy. When we started talking about analytics four or five years ago, we talked about the possibilities. But now you can go to several places in here, and they'll tell you we've reduced sepsis deaths by 78%. Well, maybe those patients died of something else, but that's meaningful. If that's my mom, if that's your dad, that's meaningful. And that's why way back when, that's why I got into healthcare. I'm sure as a physician, that's why you got into healthcare to change people's outcomes. We have a great example that even sort of preempts that. So one of the analytics projects that we worked on were the preoperative analytics and gathering all the information, not just the clinical information, but everything that the patients would allow for us. And what's really fascinating about that is that we were able to what what changed was where we focused the resources on the people that were at most risk from post-operative surgical infection. This was in the abdominal area, which is the highest risk because you're dealing with essentially bugs. So it's a challenging area. And they saw this astounding level of reduction in terms of post-operative surgical infection. That's real benefit. So much so that they expanded it long past the abdominal system. They're looking at other surgical areas. So there's real value in predictive elements. And I know it's a buzzword and it gets abused and you can look at it in the sort of hype cycle that a lot of people are familiar with. But ultimately, without data, we can't make decisions. Lord Kelvin said that back in the 1800s. Somebody said there was somebody before that. I don't know. I know it as Lord Kelvin. He's a British guy, so I have to quote him. Without data, you have no decision-making process. Absolutely. We always bring our crystal ball here to HIMSS, and we ask our guests to look into it. How do you see healthcare evolving the next three to five years? What if these buzzwords are really going to take and really have a real impact on the quality of healthcare and really change people's lives. My crystal ball is cloudy like everybody else's and my predictions the best that I can assess. I look at the short term, clearly I think disruption from the political landscape. From a technology standpoint, I think there are some breakouts. I like to give a shout out to the FDA. I think they've done a good job of sort of providing a pathway from non-regulated to regulated for these devices and apps and so forth. And there's a lot of frustration from the clinical community that this stuff doesn't really deliver value and we have to sort of regulate it and it's got to have accuracy. And I think there's value in that, but there's still value in the data that is not regulated to some extent, not always, and also not necessarily at clinical grade, although I think that's important. And it depends on the decision. If you're making a decision to give insulin or not, you need to know what the glucose level is accurately. If I'm just measuring your pulse and looking at it over time, I don't necessarily need that. So I think that's the sort of short-term breakout is going to be these devices and the integration. The key to that, in my mind, is integrating into a single perspective or a single platform. If you have to step outside of your normal workflow, workflow is key. If you fail to take account of that, you're missing the opportunity to really drive it. Now, there's a few exceptions, and the iPhone's a great one. Seven or eight years ago, this wasn't what we used, but it was so brilliant. Everybody took it up, and we chucked out our other phones and went to this whole thing without a keyboard mostly it has to fit in. So it has to be integrated, and that's the key asset. And then if I want to go way out there, 
Artificial intelligence for me is the wrong term. It's augmented intelligence that's really going to drive the value. We're not driving people out. When you go and see your physician, you want the physician, you don't want the technology. So we have an opportunity to augment that. The idea that any clinician or any patient can process all this knowledge completely and utterly preposterous at the point that we're at. We want to bring the right information, right time for the decision making at the point of care or at the point of the decision. We do that with technology. We do that with mobile devices. But I think we're going to see augmented intelligence and then some of the sort of drone technology and remote delivery and telemedicine is really, I think, going to take off. It's not going to replace But it is going to extend. Most people would say they'll take a telehealth visit if it was paid for or whatever versus hauling in 20 minutes, finding parking, paying for parking, sitting in a way. Intelligent use of all of this is really going to, I think, facilitate a much smoother, frictionless experience. Good deal. And our last question for you, Dr. Nick, what are your top two or three goals while you're here at HIMSS? I always enjoy hymns, but there's an element of terror. (laughs) I achieved, I think it was almost 20,000 steps yesterday, and that was without a run in the morning, which I just couldn't take. So there's a challenge relative to that. The real positive here is people are here. I get to connect. I get to meet people in person. You're one of them. Right. You and I have not physically met, although I certainly feel like I know you. Social media is an enabler like technology is. It's not about the media. It's not about Twitter or LinkedIn. It's about connecting people. Absolutely. We would not be having... Well, we might have had this discussion, but mostly I don't think so. And it's open doors internationally. So it's making those real connections. And that builds. It continues. And that's the beauty of the social media post the show. Then it's obviously the educational opportunities to learn from others and understand. And my privilege this year was to share some of my experiences. So I had a good time doing that. And then finally, it's walking the halls to just see. And I know some of these people will pop up and disappear, but some of them are going to pop up and explode. I'm sure, and I wish I could go back. I've been to many of these. You probably have too. And see the small booths that were over in the nosebleed section that are now big booths on the main aisle. And it's finding those individuals. Not that the others are not important or interesting, but not everybody makes it. But seeing that and being part of that experience for me is the real positive. Absolutely. I want to add one other thing and it's only because you mentioned it but i'm just going to say roll tide and i'm not a big (laughs) u.s football fan but my son is actually at the university of alabama and i didn't even know there was sports going on on saturdays in the united (laughs) states and wow there's this whole thing and it's really exciting and by the way roll tide (laughs) oh i wish i could tell you stories about moving to alabama and football we are a house divided between arkansas where i went alabama who my wife follows and auburn who my son wants to go be the star quarterback in eight more years. Well, it's been a really exciting journey for me to learn and understand that. I went to the stadium there. I just want to tell you, that's bigger than Wembley Stadium. Maybe it's not with the new one, but certainly the old one. Wow. Wow. It's amazing, for sure. All right, Dr. Nick, we're going to wrap it up. Before we let you go, what's the best way for people to contact you or connect with you on social media? My Twitter handle, at D-R-N-I-C, the number one, Dr. Nick One. I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on Facebook and you can find all of my contact details. I'm a pretty much an open connector. I love the opportunity to talk and connect with people wherever they come from. Absolutely. And we all thank you for that, Dr. Nick. It's a great pleasure having you on. Thanks for taking the time today. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. That wraps this live broadcast. Again, we want to shout out a quick thanks to our sponsor, Experian Health. On behalf of Dr. Nick and myself, we'll be back from Orlando. Smarter business decisions, a better bottom line. 
stronger relationships with patients. That's what more than 3,000 hospitals and health systems and 7,000 other healthcare providers, 60% of all U.S. healthcare organizations, are experiencing as partners of Experian Health. Experian Health provides industry-leading revenue cycle management, identity management, patient engagement, and care management solutions that power opportunities in today's value-based healthcare environment. Find out for yourself by going to www.experian.com forward slash healthcare. Bookmark that site to keep abreast of Experian Health's transformative service offerings.